Hello everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Macaulay Tucker Show. I'm your host Macaulay Tucker and today we have a very special guest, Steve Hickner. Steve is an American animator and director at DreamWorks Animation Studios. He is best known for directing DreamWorks movies such as The Prince of Egypt, The Bee Movie. He's even worked in the art department on over 40 film projects and he also has 7 director credits. Today on the show we'll be talking to Steve about his career, how he got started, and what it was like directing on the ever-so-popular B-movie. Thanks so much for tuning in. Let's get started. I think it would be appropriate to ask, as I always ask guests like you, what got you started in this industry? Well, actually, uh, that's an interesting story. It was my high school English teacher. It's probably about your age. Is that I was very interested in uh, drawing. I always thought, oh, maybe I want to be a cartoonist or something, like for a newspaper. I hadn't really given much thought to thought to animation. And I did this report. We had to do a report on something we liked, and I did it on uh, cartoonists. And when I got it back, I had this note on it, on the top of it, that said, see me. Well, <laughs> if you remember in high school, when you were in high school, it terrified me. It's like uh, nothing good ever comes out of see me in red on the top of your paper. That's not a good thing to get. and. So after class, I went and talked to the teacher and he said, have you ever thought about animation before? And I said, no, I never have given any thought. And he said, well, this student, Tom Brielman, he has a Super 8 camera. Back then there were none of these uh, incredible tools we have today. And he said, I'll bet if you did an animated film, he would let you borrow it. And so I went home that day, literally, and started animating. And I knew nothing of animation. And basically, I kind of slowly inadvertently like reinvented animation because there were no books on this. I lived in West Hartford, Connecticut. There was one book in the library on, uh, on animation that was on the Zagreb Film Festival in back then Czechoslovakia. Now it's Croatia. And there was the Lenny Lipton Super 8 book. And that was it. And so I started drawing and I found out that the drawings would slip around. So I actually got photo corners and I would slip the paper in the photo corners and draw that way. And then I realized, I said, you know, this would be easier if I had hope, a punch. So I got a three hole punch and I had my father make me a thing with dowel rods so that they would hold them in registration like a, you know, with three holes, but I did it at the top of the paper. I didn't have the idea, like to do it in the bottom of the paper, which they used in Hollywood. I actually uh, later found out that in New York on the East Coast, when they started animation, all of their artwork was top pegged. And in, um, in um, Hollywood, everything was bottom pegged. And they used, I, and I was using a three-hole punch, right? Three round dowel rods. Of course, I later found out that they used two rectangular ones and one in the middle, which was round, which were the Acme pegs. Anyway, so I started creating my own peg system. And then I said, you know, it'd be better if I could see through this. So I actually went in my dining room and I got a pane of glass and I separated my table, you know, where the the leaf goes in the table. I put a pane of glass and put a light underneath it so that I could see. So I kind of created my own light board. But the first film came out, it was dreadful, as, as you'd expect. I mean, it was 
crazy too fast. Do you still I have it? Do you still have I the know. film? <laughs> Thankfully, I have destroyed it. <laughs> and and uh, deliberately <laughs> destroyed it. And um, I, I had it up until about two years ago. And I said, do I want to keep this? And I said, no, <laughs> I destroyed it. And, but it went too fast. So I, I got it back. And back then, you'd send it to, um, there was only one place in West Hartford that, that would develop film. So I took it to this photo store. And it took two and a half weeks to get it back. And I got it back and I watched it and it moved too fast. And I didn't know about putting drawings in ones or twos, which means if uh, for the uninitiated, it means uh, you take your drawing and shoot it on two frames instead of one frame. I didn't know that. And that's a lot of what they did. During to save animations, you have to do 24 drain, uh, drawings a second. They would do 12 and shoot the drawings in twos and hold each for two frames. So I did everything I wanted. <laughs> because that's all I knew, and it moved too fast. So my solution was to do twice as many drawings <laughs> instead of like, why don't I just take these same drawings and shoot them on twos and see what it looks like? I didn't know that. But once the bottom line is, that's a long story to get to the bottom line, is the second I saw that animation move, I never was interested in doing st static drawings again. That was it. It's like from then on, uh, was the love affair with uh, animation eventually uh, storytelling. It became, this is incredible. This is much more fun than a still drawing. That's crazy. You mentioned a lot of really interesting things here. You mentioned how it was, from my understanding, difficult for you to find sources to learn about this. You mentioned the library and being, you know, one book. Um, how were you able, over time, uh, to find sources of learning? For storyboard. Well, I went to the library and would get magazines and look things up in magazines. It was it was very hard to find out information. Um, basically, it really was trial and error. Is I would try things and they wouldn't work. So I would, I would say, oh, this is this will work instead. Like my peg system and my light board. And as I say, I eventually uh, reinvented the history of animation just by trial and error, not because I knew anything. Um, and if I just had a book to look at, I could have I could have saved myself a lot of trouble. I could have gotten much further ahead if I had been able to see something. Or even better yet, if I knew someone who could have helped me, like, uh, and pointed me in the right direction. Um, after discovering this new, you know, interest of yours in, you know, animation and things like that, and uh, what was the first step that you took? Were you wanting to uh, join an industry like, you know, DreamWorks? Were you wanting to find a group of people? Or were you like, wanting to start off by just practicing and practicing? Um, yeah. It, it was kind of like that. I, I was doing animation, but the trouble with animation is it's so slow. It would take me six months to make a one-minute film. And, uh, you know, at that rate, basically in my entire junior year in high school, I could make one minute and a half or 80 second film. And so concurrently with that, I got a Super 8 camera and I started shooting live action movies. So I could learn how to storytell faster in live action. So I would still do my animated ones, but I could make live action movies in maybe a month. And so, uh, because I didn't know it then, but I know it now, I think iteration is the key to doing anything good. It is 
doing it again and again. I now call them at-bats, like a baseball player, at-bats. Is You want as many at-bats as you can get. That's how you get to be good. Yeah, I mean, if you only have one at-bat a game, it, it's going to be hard to hit a home run. But if you get you know, 15, you have 15 chances to hit a home run. So that's, that's what the live action did for me is it supplemented animation and it'll let me get more at bats. So let me make more bad, frankly, let me more make more bad movies because all of them were bad, but each one I would learn something and go, okay, well, I won't make that mistake next time. After spending all this time, you mentioned in your junior year preparing and, you know, learning and practicing and all that, what was the first big break for you? What was the, the you know, what was the start to where you are now working on films and TV shows and things like that, what would you say was the first project that you uh, were lucky enough uh, and fortunate enough to hop on? Well, I, th I think that my, the, the aha moment really was that my English teacher, Jim Myers, who literally changed my life with that one thing. When I moved to uh, Los Angeles, um, I met this guy, Kay Wright, who was the first person to hire me, who I call my guardian angel. He's since passed away. But he gave me my first job and he helped me for probably my first like four or five years in the business. And without him, I would have been nowhere. That guy to me was was a saint. He, uh, I just loved him. He, he, and he had so much tremendous experience that and I was so green and knew nothing. And in 1991, I was uh, producing in London. And I had heard that Kay had retired. And so I, I got his phone number and I called Kay from London. And Kay was now living in um, what he called in his house by the river, which was the Colorado River in Arizona. And I called Kay and said, Kay, it's, it's Steve. And he goes, and she said, Steve, it's so good to hear you. I said, I'd never, I, I didn't think you'd remember me. And I said, Kay, how could I forget you? You changed my life. Uh, you, I would be nowhere without you. And he said, no, he said, you always had talent. And he said, no, you gave me the start. So I was very grateful. And then a, a few years later, that was the last time I ever got to talk to Kay because I lived in London when I got, when I moved back to the States, he had passed away. But um, I'm forever grateful that I had the opportunity to thank him because he literally did uh, change my life by giving me that first job. That's really beautiful to hear this, you know, relationship with your mentor over all this year and how he's been able to, he'd been able to help you grow. Um, you know, once you got your first job and once you began uh, working, what challenges were you facing? Because there's challenges that you would face, you had faced when you started, uh, but what were the type of challenges that you'd faced, you know, at your first job and how were you able to, uh, you know, face these challenges and beat them, as you could say? Uh in fact, there were two of these, uh, two big moments. The first one was when I went to Florida State University and I decided I wanted to go to a film school. So I transferred to New York University Film School. And the first day I went to class, um, I realized that these kids in this class, they're really good and they're incredibly knowledgeable. I mean, some uh Joel Cohen, who won an Oscar, was a year older than me. Uh, Chris Columbus, who directed, you know, all kinds of great movies. And, uh, and Charlie Kaufman, uh, they were a year younger than me. They, so there were like world-class talents in these classes. And I, 
I realized that I didn't have the knowledge that they had about movies in the first day because I grew up in West Hartford, Connecticut. I, I think Chris grew up in Ohio. And so it wasn't like he had this. And interestingly, uh, Charlie Kaufman, I think, grew up in the same time I did in West Hartford, Connecticut. And so, but so a lot of the students grew up in New York City or in the area of New York and so had access to stuff that I didn't. And so that first day of class, I came out of class like just blown away at the, at the way these students talked that they knew movies in a way that I didn't. They had been exposed to movies in a way that I hadn't. And I walked out, I went up to my uh, friend of mine, Mike Miller, I said, Mike, I don't know what these guys, I literally don't know what these guys are talking about. It's like another language. And he said, well, you need to go to a repertory theaters. And I go, well, what's that? They didn't have anything like that in West Hartford, Connecticut. He, he said, they're theaters that show old movies. And so I said, ah, so I started to go to repertory theaters and that I created my own concurrent education in addition to what I was learning at NYU is that every day I would go see a movie or two movies. And I would say at the end, I was put, I would place myself on the bottom 5% of students when I first got to NYU in terms of how many movies I had seen. And I would say when I graduated, I would put myself in the top 10% of movies that people had seen and I would say professionally I would be in definitely in the top five percent I rarely meet anybody who's seen more movies than I have uh when I was working professionally almost never uh and it's because I watched a lot of movies but that's how you get to be good so that was my first big transformational moment to realize I need to learn about if I want to make movies I need to watch movies I need to watch a lot of movies to catch up. So that was the first thing. The thing that at, at um, when I started at Filmation uh, in 1982, I was laid off and there was a strike year. The cartoonists went on strike and there was very little work in town. And I didn't work that much at all. I got work 10 weeks in 1982. And I looked around and I said, you know what? The people who are working are all in the top 10%. I need to get my skill set in the top 10% or I'm not going to work. And so I decided I made a literally made a list for myself what I needed to do. This is what I need to do if I want to get in the top 10%. The number one was I need to go somewhere where I can learn how to about animation, how it's made right. And at that point in 1980, 1981, 1982, there was only one place in the world that was really doing it, and that was Walt Disney Animation. So I said, I need to get into Disney, and I need to work there. And so I spent, I said, next year, I'm going to apply to try to get into Disney, but my skill set isn't there. So that was the big thing. I'd never taken an art class. Uh, I didn't take art in high school. I didn't take any in college. So I said, I need to get my draftsmanship up. I was never that secure with my drawing ability. I could draw, but I needed to get better. And I need to get better fast, like in a year. And the only way I'm going to do that is to do it a lot. So I started taking life drawing during the week. I started going to park on Saturdays and sketching. And I started going to the zoo on Sundays. And that was my drill for a year. 
And it took me 15 months, but I got in to Disney. But the, the point is, in the same way that when I was at NYU and realized my shortfall that I didn't know enough, I went into a obsessive thing to, to catch up. I did the same thing with um, drawing. And I would say if I have any uh, skill at all, it's that I'm very good at analyzing what I'm not good at. <laughs> and then saying, this is what I need to go be good at. How do I do this? And I have a really good disciplined work ethic that I'm not someone who procrastinates. I, I'm crazy focused once I decide to do something. I thought it was really nice hearing you talk about, um, you know, writing and planning and wanting to grow. And I thought that was very encouraging because that's something that I work on too, you know, preparing lists and finding things that I'm not good at and wanting to improve, like music production. I would have never imagined that I would be at a point where I could, you know, not the songs might not be that good, but, you know, preparing and composing things. Uh, what type of movies helped you the most? Did you watch a specific type of film or did you watch everything? You know, it's interesting. I was just thinking today, and I don't know why I, I was thinking about this literally today when I was um, driving, I was thinking, you know what, of my top three movies that I love, that if somebody says, what's your favorite movie? I always pick three movies. One of them is Mary Poppins, which is my Star Wars. The way that other people feel about Star Wars, that's how I feel about Mary Poppins. When I saw Mary Poppins in first grade, that was like, wow. Um, that was like the pinnacle of Disney. It's like, how could anything be that good? It was a musical that I loved, the, the animation was good. It was so much fun. So Mary Poppins is my all-time favorite like crowd pleaser movie. Uh, in terms of craftsmanship, uh, it would be Citizen King, which is dazzling. And I look at it even now and think, how in the hell does anybody get to be that good? I mean, I just look at it really. I, I tell students just if you only if you only had one film that you could look at to study how to make a movies, to me it would be Citizen King. And I had never seen Citizen Kane until I went to college. So I didn't even know the movie existed. And then lastly, it would be The Godfather, which uh, is common with a lot of people, a lot of uh, men my generation, Godfather's their favorite movie. They can quote all the lines in it, seen it a million times. And I was the reason I was thinking about today is The Godfather is the only movie of those three that I did not see the first time in a movie theater. I saw it on television when NBC, because back then the way it would work is a movie would come out and the networks would, eventually the movie would come out and the networks would be able to buy it, but they could not screen it until five years after it had its last theatrical release. So if it came out in 1972, which The Godfather did, they would not be able to show it on television until 1977. Anyway, so The Godfather was the first time I saw it was on television. And uh, what, what's interesting to me, I realized, even as a television thing, those old clunky TVs that we established like a piece of furniture, that movie like floored me and still does since that I've seen it many times and including in a theater. And it's like, my God, that is a, 
that is a brilliant movie. I, I kind of feel like the way with Citizen Kane, like how does anybody get to be, how does Coppola get to be that good? How do you get to be that good to make a movie like that? That's awesome. I Something that you mentioned, uh, Mary Poppins, and something that stood out for me is Mary Poppins was real life, but also involved a hand-drawn animation. And I know you also worked on Roger Rabbit, similar to Mary Poppins, real life, hand-drawn animation. I guess. Was that was that a great experience for you? Because, I mean, it's not exactly like Mary Poppins story-wise, but it shares similarity that the production, you know, cameras and then hand-drawn. Um, what was it like for you on that? Well, uh, Roger Rabbit uh, was another movie that changed my life because when I worked at Roger Rabbit um, in London, I got to work with the Amblin people and that was an eye-opener. And I don't mean to disparage Disney because I love Disney, but my feeling was at Disney at that time, it was a me, mine, my culture. That the way that people would talk about their work, it says, I did this, this is my scene, that. The second I went to on Roger Rabbit and met the Amblin people, I heard something I had literally never heard in my life before. And that was a culture of we, our, us. At Amblin, it was, we are going to do this. This is our movie. And uh, it's about us. And that comes from Steven Spielberg. That's his Emma. And that was transformational for me. And, and I cannot overstate this. Um, I had never seen that. It's like completely selfless. It was all about the work. Nobody was carving out. Nobody was talking about their thing. It wasn't about the nine old men and this. It was about us. We were going to make this movie. And on Roger Rabbit, that's what it was like. And it was clearly Bob Zemeckis' movie. There's no question about it. He was the driving force. Bob Zemeckis was the guy. But the culture was we, our, us. And the minute I was exposed to that, I said, that's where I want to work. And so at the end of that, I went back to Disney. I worked on Little Mermaid, which I loved working on that movie. It's a fantastic movie. Arguably the best movie I ever worked on in my life. Um, and, but in the back of my head, we, our, us was going. And I, I had already made the shift. I said, I got to find a way to go work for that, for Steven Spielberg. And so I did that for, a, I, I worked on Little Mermaid, which I loved, by the way. Uh, and it was a great team of people. But I, my shift was, I want to work with this guy. And because Jaws was also a transformational and, and so was Close Encounters, I love those movies. And uh, so, you know, um, in 1989, I left Disney. I went to uh, work for Ambl Amblin. And um, I can tell you for the next, and then, so I worked it with Steven Spielberg for six years and then for Amblin for 25 years. In 2020, when COVID hit, I'm, I'm now I'm teaching at Ringling College in uh, Sarasota. And um, so for the, my last the 31 years of my life, I 
kind of worked in uh, a Steven Spielberg orbit. And I can tell you, it was always every day, we, our, us. And when you work in that environment, you don't ever want to work anywhere else. That's really, that's really beautiful. I love hearing that because it's not making it about like, oh, I did this, I did that, we did, me and my team, we, we made this. Um, and so, you know, going from Disney and going from Disney, didn't you also, from Disney, did you transition to DreamWorks after that, correct? Well, actually, I went from uh, Disney to Amblin in London, and then um, Amblin in London kind of became DreamWorks when Jeffrey left, when Jeffrey Katzenberg left uh, Disney and joined with Steven Spielberg and David Geffen to form uh, DreamWorks in 1994. And what had been your first uh, project with DreamWorks, that you would say? When... when uh, DreamWorks started, it was only Prince of Egypt. Later on, they added ants, but that was the only thing there was, Prince of Egypt. And I learned a while back that that was actually the first uh, hand-drawn DreamWorks film, from my understanding. And so working on Prince of Egypt, uh, what was it like? Because there was a lot of directors on this one. And had this been your first directing role um, in your whole library of projects? Yes. And I was so lucky to get to work with Brenda and Simon, Brenda Chapman and Simon Wells, because we were we are a great team, and we and unlike uh, many partnerships which fall apart, and, and we didn't. I mean, years later, it's I don't know how many years. Uh, what is it? It's twenty four years. I guess this year will be twenty four years since Prince of Egypt came out, uh, and we still email each other and our friends. So. Uh, we still have that bond from having made that movie together. Um, one question involving this film is what had you learned from being in this position um, as a director? This had been your first time directing with others a film. What's one major thing that you'd learned from this film directing that you've been able to apply to future projects? Well, I would say the difference between, I, I tell this to people, the difference between, you know, people would make a short film and think it's really good, they'll be a good director. A short film, in my opinion, it's just my opinion, is no indication of whether you're going to be a good feature director. There's two totally different skills. Yeah, because a short film you can make with a small crew with a few people. Um, making a feature animated film is, a, is crowd control for three and a half years. And it's about, to me, the most, and the older I get, the more it is this, is it's the experience that people have making the movie. Is to be absolutely candid, if I had a choice between making an okay movie that everybody had the best time of their life making or a great movie that everybody was miserable on, I would rather make a, I would rather make a good movie that everybody had the best time of their life on. Because at the end of the day, it's about people's lives to me. A, a great movie is great, but I'm, I really care more about what a person's life is like and what their day-to-day experience is. And that's one of the main things as a director, keeping them into it and making it a pleasant thing that people love to come to work and not a miserable thing like, oh, I can't wait for this damn film to be over. And there are films that are great films that are horrible experiences. Exactly. What was your thought process like when you when you watched this film and, you know, during the credits, it was all finally done, all the hard work, and you see your name as one of the directors? Like, was this something like, wow, look, there I am. I'm, I'm doing something that I have never done before. 
direct helping direct something. <laughs> this is going to seem uh, crazy, but I actually have never seen Prince of Egypt since we finished it uh, at the at the dubbing stage. So I've never seen it in a theater. I've never saw it at the premiere. Uh, when we finished it at the dubbing stage, um, I think it was at Fox. I can't remember. Uh, that was it. I never saw it again. So that would have been, that would have been like uh, you know October and November nineteen ninety eight. Um, so. As far as the um, the credits and everything, I, I can't even, that I can't even remember, but because really, to be honest, it goes back to my earlier thing. It really is about the experience of making the thing. And I loved working on that movie with those people. I mean, I mean, it was a, such great talents and a, a really, it truly was an honor to get to work with those people for that period of time on that movie. And so um, once, I'm done with a movie, especially after spending three and a half years of my life, I'm done with a movie. It's like, I don't care to see it anymore. And I don't watch anything I work on again. I'm done. I'm off to the next thing. And so uh, it really isn't about the accolades and, and that kind of thing for me. Uh, it really is about, maybe it would have been, you know, when I was your age, but by the time I did it, it, it was really about the experience of working with the people. Would you say this was the same as well for the B-movie? That one was another one of your directing works, and I don't believe it had a smaller amount of directors. I believe it was you and another gentleman, whereas for The Prince of Egypt, it was a lot more people. Um, for the B-movie, uh, what was it like working on this film? Um, because this was a lot different. This wasn't, from my understanding, this was all computer-generated uh, you know, animation. This was something new. What was it like working on this film? Well, I had worked in CG movies, uh, studying with uh, Shark Tale. So it wasn't like the, the first one, as far as the tools go. Uh, I mean, what was the treat was to get to work with Jerry Seinfeld. The guy is brilliant and he's a delight to work with, really. is It was so much fun. At the end of the movie, I said, Jerry, you have ruined me for the rest of my life because... Um, this was so much fun. This will never happen again. And it never did happen again. And uh, it was, a, and same thing would be true with uh, Roger Rabbit and Little Mermaid and uh, Prince of Egypt. They're, they're all like one time things that you never do again. But uh, working with Jerry was really a, a delight. And to be able to, uh, he taught me a lot how to work with people because I really loved working with him. That's great to hear. And so working, uh, knowing this, th would this mean that you were with a lot of the voice actors when they recorded? Did you learn anything interesting from this experience, um, being with the voice actors, um, you know, recording their lines? Was there anything, you know, even from Jerry, that like, hey, like, I, I, I learned something, and I'm going to apply this to future works? Well, this should be kind of obvious. I actually learned this on a on a thing I called uh, Funny You Don't Look 200, uh, this TV thing that Richard Dreyfuss did. And because uh, Richard Dreyfuss was producing that, he was there at the sessions. And so because he's an actor, he read against the other actors whenever we were recording one, because a lot of times in animation, the actor has to work by themselves. But I watched when Richard Dreyfuss worked with the other actor and read against him, suddenly the level of the acting of the other person went up tremendously. And I realized it's a huge advantage to get to get someone else in the room for them to work with. 
the actor. So they're not working alone. And of course, the better the person in the room with them, the better the, the performance you get from them. Well, uh, in that regard, B-movie was the luckiest thing ever because uh, Jerry was there all the time. So you had the main actor, which never, I don't believe this has ever happened in an animated movie before or since, that the main actor is in every single recording session reading against the people. And because of that, elevated the performances. And with that comedy, I don't think we would have ever gotten some of the stuff we had if Jerry hadn't been there reading against him all the time. That's awesome. Um, One question I was going to ask you just about in this directing position, that one that I've always wanted to know and learn about, um, just kind of like, what is it like being a director? What sort of things are you directing? What things are you like, what are you given to work with when you're a director? Well, it's the same thing like a live action. If you're um, working in editing, you're working on the timing and the, you know, working with the storyboard artist, you're working on the story and the staging and layout. It's kind of like the <clears throat> cinematography with animators. You're working on the actor. Uh, in, in animation, you have this kind of disconnect because you have a voice actor and then you have a person who's doing the animation. And so you have to get them to work together. Um, but it's the same kinds of thing. It just takes forever because you're not on a set. You have to, I've had people say, how do you make continuity mistakes in animation? Because you're, you have, everything is framed down. How come there's a continuity mistake? And I said, because sometimes you're doing something and you're not going to get to the next part of the process for until six months. So you have to hold that in your head for six months. We used to joke on Prince of Egypt, the very first shot that we put into production on Prince of Egypt is the um, oh, the closing shot in the song Deliver Us, where they go, deliver us, you get that note, you pan up the the um, thing, and you see the sphinx head of Seti across over Egypt. That was the very first shot put into production on Prince of Egypt. It was the very last shot finished. It took three and a half years to do that shot because some of the technology didn't exist when we started. So you have to hold that in your head for three and a half years while you're making that movie, what that's going to look like. And that's why you get continuity mistakes because it takes so long. Yeah, no, I can definitely get that. Um, my, my uncle runs his own, his own little film company kind of thing here in my city and he wanted to make a film with us with the cousins and we filmed it not in order so like it was like very all over the place it was just really different and so I definitely I can now I understand you know that in Hollywood it's the same thing um working as a director was it very stressful I know your first directing role was the Prince of Egypt so kind of I'm asking combining both those films like was it very stressful for you at all personally you know what I have to say uh no and because it's uh, that old saying, many hands make light work. It's because in all those years at, at DreamWorks, at Disney, and Amblin, I, had, I was working with the best people, literally the best people in the world. And so um, I, when you work with people of that caliber, everybody's there helping you. So I'm not doing it by myself. I'm not working a lot. So... I, I didn't feel that thing because I knew I had all of these people helping me all the time. It really it was that we our us. And if you have that, it, it you don't have that thing. It's when you try to do everything yourself that you're going to get that 
attention. Um, you mentioned, you know, working with, you know, Jerry on the B movie. Um, what was what I sometimes I ask my guests these questions because I love hearing stories. And what was one of your favorite moments working with Jerry? Um, just one that kind of comes top of your head uh, working with uh, Jerry on the B movie. Well, uh, one of the things with Jerry is he has everything in the world he ever wants. So there's, his life is only about one thing. And that's about laughing and having a good time. That's the only thing he's interested in. If it's not, if he's not going to have a good time doing it and have fun and laugh, he doesn't want to do it. He's not interested. And I love that. And so when we were working on this thing, like he would have things like we would have a day that was like today we're going to find the best cupcake in Los Angeles while we worked. So in the afternoon, we'd have all these cupcakes be brought in and decide which was the best cupcake in LA or which was the best French toast in LA or what was the best. <laughs> and so you would have things like that. Today, we're going to find out who makes the best yogurt in LA. And, and so it was always fun working with him. That's what I would, that's what I would say I learned is that, and it permeated my thing is you got to have fun. It, and if, if, there was a great moment on, on B-Movie. I'll never forget this. Jeffrey Katzberg was the head of the studio. We were looking at uh, a thing and Jeffrey said, he said, Jerry, I don't know if your acting is that strong in here. And Jerry turned to Jeffrey and said, Jeffrey, have you seen the show? Oh, I know what it was. He's, he's uh, Jerry's, Jeffrey said, Jerry, it seems like you're laughing when you're saying the scene. I don't know if the acting is very good because it looks like you're laughing when you're saying it. And Jerry said, Jeffrey, have you seen my show? He said, I'm laughing in every scene. He said, every scene, if you watch Seinfeld, I'm trying not to laugh. He said, he said that's why I have everybody else in the show because they're the good actors. He said, I'm not an actor. I'm a comedian. And he said, so I'm trying not to laugh. He said, that's why I have, you know, all these great people around me because they make me look. <laughs> that's hilarious. That's awesome. It's always good to, you know, remember, you know, to always have fun while you're working and not let all like the, the whole business, busyness of the day take over. Um, one question I was going to ask, because similar to Mark Walton, when I interviewed and talked with him, you know, he was a storyboard artist like you and he was and he would as a storyboard artist would uh, do these voices um, and fill in for the storyboard art um, for you. Have you ever been able to have your voice, you know, big or small, appear in any films? Well, first, Mark is a really good actor. He's very effusive. He's really, he's really fun. And he's terrific as the hamster in Bolt. He's like the standout character in that movie. And in Bolt, the thing you remember is Mark Walton is that hamster. He's a storyboard artist. And um, so Mark is a really good actor. And I think that infuses into his storyboarding. I, on the other hand, am a terrible actor <laughs> and, and freely admit it and would uh, in, in every opportunity do everything I can not to be in it because I, I hope it to be, I want it to be good and not to be dragged down. I did, one thing I could do is I did this really good um, thing of these hornets that were in B-movie, but they were cut. But that was like the only thing that ever worked that I ever did. It kind of worked for who I am, uh, uh, but they were cut from the movie. 
but uh, other than that, I've never been killed. That sucks. Did you do, like, any voices for the Hornets, or was it just you saying, like, something? No, it was kind of a voice, but I don't want to do it. <laughs> I won't put you on the spot on that one. But- um. From the B-Movie, after working on this project, you've worked on numerous uh, DreamWorks projects over the years. One of the things that stood out for me looking through International Movie Database was you, I'm not sure if this is correct, but you actually wrote a song, or you helped write a song for a project. I'll pull it up here so I can find it. Um, It was for Donkey's Christmas Shrektacular, writer of the Ogre's Christmas Song. I'm like, Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) Well, all I did was take an existing song, which I think was rocking around the Christmas tree and make it track. That's awesome. I don't, what was exactly, was it like a, I don't remember, I don't think I've seen it, but was this like a short, was this a long song? Cause I just, yeah, it was, it's one of those DVD extra things that they did. That's awesome. And aside from write, like aside from that, um, do, have you had any experience writing? Uh, I know you an author, but like in film, uh, what other things? Uh, we did most of the writing I did was with Gary uh, Trousdale. Uh, the last like six years when I worked in animation, six or seven years, was all in theme parks stuff. And I worked with Gary Trousdale, who directed Beauty and the Beast. And so together we wrote a lot of different, um, tons of dialogue and stuff for theme park rides and attractions and, and wrote the scripts to those things. And I loved working in theme parks. Oh, if it, if it weren't for COVID, I probably would have still been doing it, but COVID destroyed that business for two years. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, Kind of like now has, I asked Mark Walton the same question, but for you, you know, as a storyboard artist and a writer and all this, when COVID hit, um, this impacted Hollywood. And recently, have you been able to work a lot? Uh, Mark told me that for him, it's just been, he really hasn't been able to get a lot of work. And I was curious for you, has it been a similar situation? Well, after uh, B-Movie, I decided I wanted to write a book. And I decided I kind of didn't want to direct so much anymore. It takes so much of your time. I wanted to do other things. And, uh, and when that happened, I started going to schools because I felt like I have had the best mentors anyone could ever have in their life. I have been so lucky and people have been so generous that I that I could not have any of the success I had without these people. These I owe these people everything. And so I said, I need to pay it back. I don't have kids. And so I need to pay back these people. And the only way I can do that is to pay it forward to the next generation. And so I went to, uh, started going to schools to guest speak. And I discovered that the young people hadn't seen any movies. They were not at all like I was when I was a kid. They hadn't seen anything. And I said, oh boy, if the people who are interested in movies and want to make movies haven't seen movies, that's not a good sign for movies. So back in uh, 2009, 2008, 2009, I said, I got to get out of movies because I think At that point, I felt like theatrical, the movie market was going to shrink and die away. And I said, I don't want to be on something that's going to end. Like, uh, there's no honor in being the captain that goes down with the ship. I want to be the first guy off the ship. 
So I looked around because I was going to schools and I was, you know, going to maybe six schools a year talking. And I said, what young people were interested in is experiential stuff, not just passive, experiencing things. That's kind of what Instagram and TikTok is about. It's about the experience of doing it. And I and so I said, I think theme parks are going to be huge. And the technology that's coming down the pike is going to go groove right into theme parks. And I really want to be a part of that because I love theme parks. As much as I like movies, I also like theme parks. And so uh, as luck would have it, I did end up doing the last uh, six or seven years of my life uh, of my career working in, in that business. Then COVID hit. And we had this really good film that was really looking forward to making. And I figured it would take two year, a year and a half, two years to make it. It was going to be a, a location-based thing that would, and it looked really good that we are going to get the green light to get to make this movie. And I said, this will probably be the last thing I, I work on in my career is I will finish this movie. It will be, because I was working with a bunch of people at DreamWorks, which was quite frankly, the best crew I ever worked on in my life. We, there was about 15 of us in this small group that worked on theme parks. And every single one of them was so like overqualified for what they were doing. It was amazing. It was fantastic. It was, a t it was, I used to say, it was like being, making student films with other people's money is that we had other people paint the fun. Like I had when I first started out in the business, I was having, a, well, I mean, when I first, not in the business, when I first started as a kid, I was having that as an adult, except other people were giving us money to make the things. And I had fantastic people like on, on one of the last things we work on. Steven Spielberg was our executive producer. So I had Steven Spielberg helping, helping us make a movie. It was like, this is a dream. Anyway, uh, COVID hit. And immediately the whole theme park location-based world that we were a part of ended. Because the last thing people wanted was to be in a place with lots of other people. And so when that hit, they were going to shut down our department. And I had spent nine years since 2009, actually 11 years, um, building relationships with the idea that when this is done, I'm going to go teach because I, I owe it to pay to the next generation. So the second I heard that they were going to uh, shut it down, I didn't I wasn't even thinking of trying to go anywhere else. I said, you know what? Now's my time to go to teaching. And so <laughs> I left DreamWorks on Friday and I started teaching at Ringling College in Florida on Monday. And I, I've been there the past couple of years and I love it. I love it. It's like um, reborn me. I had 41 years working in animation. I loved every day. And I'm going to spend the last years of my life, uh, whatever I have, teaching the next generation to help them have the life that I have. And so I get um, tremendous joy from it. I like it working with the young people. I like paying it forward. It's a great feeling to do that, to, to help others and you know i don't know how you never know how long you're going to get or how what your health is going to be but at least for the time being 
that's what that's how I'm gonna I think that's a good note to end this, but um, I really appreciate you coming on, as I always do for all my guests. I don't have any listener questions, sadly, uh, for this episode. I thought I would have gone on a lot because B-movie director, and I'm not sure if you know, but the B-movie has is very, very well known across the internet. It's sparked lots of, lot, lots of things, but there isn't any listener questions. So what I usually ask my guests is, what is one thing you would like to pass on to any one of the listeners listening to this episode at this point that they can apply to their everyday life? Okay, this is what I would say, is everyone's going to tell you can't do something. There are, that if you try to do something that's hard, people are going to say it can't be done. And that's probably true. It, it shouldn't be done. It can't. But somehow people do it. And the way you overcome that is you become the best version of you, which means you have to keep working on yourself and you have to become one of the best at what you do. If if you think you could become a C version, that's not good enough. You have to be the A version of that if you wanna make it. So uh, if you wanna do something that's very hard, then you're gonna have to become the A version of yourself, whatever that is, whatever the best thing is, and you're gonna have to really work on it. And I remember when I was in high school, I had a quote. And it, it, it was something along the lines of this. You can probably look it up. It was um, never tell a, a young man that something cannot be done because God may have been waiting for eternity for someone ignorant, for someone just so ignorant of the impossible that they would try that very thing. And that's kind of the way it is. You've got to give it your shot but you have to be the best version of yourself. So that's my advice. Awesome. Thank you so much, Steve, for passing that on to listeners. I will include every uh, his, Steve's website at the, in the description below so you can check out all his works. And thank you again, Steve, for uh, coming on to the show. Thanks for inviting me. Have a good day. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Macaulay Tucker Show. Be sure to like, follow, and share this episode to your friends so they can learn something new. Stay tuned for our next episode, and I wish you a great rest of your day. I'm not a man, 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 I'